So, uh, good morning. We're going to um, dig into Acts chapter 2 for about 30 minutes, and then the last segment of our service, just to kind of give you a a warning, we're going to talk about it, uh, because it's good to just talk with one another about it, so we'll break into groups of maybe three to five or six, and just discuss what we've heard. And for those of you that might be brand new or very new to Christianity, um, it's totally fine. Like, don't, you're not going to be put on the spot and ask this deep question or something. We're just, we're all in different places. It's fine to be in all different places. Um, yeah. I mean, when, <clears throat> when I first started in my journey with God, I, I didn't, really know anything. So I I was all questions, all questions. Um, But that's why we're here. We're here together as a community to learn together, to learn from each other. Um, This is the design of God, that he he didn't design us to just uh, learn from books or, you know, go on the internet and find our information there. Um, But we uh, are to come together as a family. And I'm I'm a teacher, here, you know, in the community. So uh, God has called me to give a teaching, but I'm learning more and more that we learn so much from one another because everyone has a question. Everyone has a perspective. Everyone has a thought. Everyone has a unique experience of God. And so when we, when we pool that, when we bring that collective wisdom, we really begin to, to see the fullness of, of God. It's like a puzzle, right? Everybody is like one piece of the puzzle. And, and together we begin to see a clear picture of who Christ is. Well, anyways, this is my, <clears throat> uh, one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. And it's an exciting one. It is, for those that don't know, it is the chapter that describes the birth of the church of Jesus. Um, To give a little context, in in chapter 1, Jesus, well, we know Jesus died on the cross. He was risen from the dead. And for about 40 days, Jesus kind of floated around and talked with his friends. At one point, he, he talked to 500 of his disciples in one location. At other points, he talked with just a couple people on the road to Emmaus. Other points, he, um, you know, talked to, you know, he came through the wall. Uh, I don't know how he did that, but he just kind of came through the, the wall of a locked room where the disciples were hanging out. And he spoke to them and ate food with them. And they touched his nail-scarred hands and they were with him. And so this happened for about 40 days. Uh, it's pretty amazing. And then uh, toward the end of this uh, season, these 40 days, Jesus gives them some final words that we talked about a couple weeks ago. Uh, he gave this promise that you shall receive power from above, from on high, uh, so that you can be my witnesses. 
And he talks about that in chapter one. And then you probably know the story. He, I always picture this like escalator type thing. He just floats up into the sky and they're, they're just watching this. He floats up into the sky is taken, taken right from them. And then eventually is hidden behind the clouds as he goes up into, you know, glory and takes his seat at the right hand of the father. Awesome picture in your mind. So the disciples are left. Okay. Well, the command of Jesus was to wait in Jerusalem until you receive this promise, this power from on high. So they do that. They go to Jerusalem and for 10 days, they spend time in a place called the upper room. Uh, We don't really know much about the upper room, how big it was or whatever, but it seems like it was maybe a large house and maybe the house had an upper room that was like a wide open space that could fit 120 people. So you have 120 of them and these are the, uh, well, not the 12 disciples, the 11. Judas isn't there at this point, but some of the um, newer potential apostles were there and probably many of the people, uh, the women, um, that followed Jesus, many of probably the, the key people that Jesus healed, maybe lepers, uh, maybe paralytics, maybe uh, the blind man, you know, that famous story where the, the, the blind guy, uh, you know, his eyes are opened by Jesus and, and he says, I don't know anything. All I know is I was blind, but now I see. Um, who knows who was there? It was men, it was women, 120 of them. That's kind of a small group, but There they are, they're praying constantly, and they're waiting, they're doing what Jesus asked them to do, to wait for this power, this promise of power from above so that they can do the work that Jesus has them to do. What's the work? To go into all the world and make disciples, right? That is the essence of what we are called to do, Um, to be witnesses, to be people who aren't just talking about something that happened a long time ago, but we are actual witnesses of the working of God in our own life. That's what we are called to do. That's a, that's kind of a tall order. So I think uh, the idea here is that, yeah, unless we actually have a real experience with God, we're just going to be talking about stuff right? We have to have that power in our life. We have to have that power of the Holy Spirit that makes Christ real to us. The power of the Spirit enables us to commune with God. The power of the Spirit is what makes this not just head knowledge. The power of the Spirit is what opens the eyes of our understanding and enables us to really grasp and comprehend the love of God in such a way that it transforms our lives. It's that power that purifies the heart, purifies the motives. It's that power that makes us brave. It's the power that takes away our guilt and gives us a clear conscience, gives us such confidence that we know we can stand before God one day and be blameless because of Jesus. This power does a lot of things. Those are just a few. But Jesus said, in no uncertain terms, you must receive this power. Or you're not going to be able to do 
the mission that I'm calling you to do. So they, they were obedient. They, they went and they prayed and they cried out to God. And that brings us to um, Acts chapter 2, when this promise that Jesus talked about comes. And I'm going to have to put my reading glasses on. And I'm just going to take you through this chapter and make some, some comments. Um, and then uh, kind of swing back around and just center in on one particular phrase, one particular verse that is really impressing me this week. But we'll see where this goes. All right, so verse 1, Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived. Now, just to give a little sense to this, the day of Pentecost was not a Christian holiday or thing on the Christian calendar, but this was um, something that was on the Jewish calendar. It was Another word was the Feast of Weeks, or I think the Feast of Harvest. And it was basically a celebration of kind of the early harvest. Uh, so, you know, Jesus died on the Passover, which was a Jewish feast. And now this birth of the church, 50 days after uh, the cross and the resurrection, this is happening on the day of Pentecost. So when the day of Pentecost arrived... They were all together. Who was they? The 120, most likely, right? They, the 120, were all together in one place. For those that care, nobody really knows what this place was. We don't know for sure that it was the upper room, but it probably was, maybe. But then they did kind of move toward meeting in the temple. Uh, They had prayer meetings three times a day. We aren't really sure exactly when that happened. So this could have been a place in the temple. We're not really sure. Maybe it was the upper room. It doesn't really matter. Verse 2. Suddenly, not gradually, suddenly there came from heaven, from above, from God, a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Now, nobody really knows exactly what that means, but all you can do is imagine it. There was a sound. Now, they were indoors, and it was the sound. What is that? The the howling, the just whistling of a wind, but they weren't feeling It doesn't say that they were feeling necessarily like a fan wind blowing on them. It was just the sound of the wind. A sound like a wind, like a mighty rushing wind. So it got me thinking about wind a little bit. And it's like, does wind have a sound? And actually, you know, there's a bunch of different things out there, but it kind of doesn't really have a sound. It's, It's more that, it, it creates a friction when it comes up against things and it creates, you know, it, it kind of bounces back and the sound creates that howl. I found this word, for those of you who are nerdy and want to learn new words, um, aeolian. So aeolian tones are produced when wind encounters an obstacle. So it might have been absolutely still 
in this room where the 120 were seated, but they heard this mighty, rushing, howling sound that came into the place. It was a sign and it was a wonder. It blew them away. I'm sure they weren't sure what was happening when it happened. And then what happened next is divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Now, this too is one of those things. That, I mean, different artists come up with uh, different things, you know, but you kind of have this idea of it's not actual fire, but it's as of fire. kind of seems like fire. This fire came into the room and God often manifests himself in fire, right? Like the burning bush and, and, and the pillar of fire and all that. Um, fire is a symbol of God's presence. So this fire-like thing comes in. Maybe it was an illumination of sorts and it, and it kind of divides and it rests upon each one of the 120. And that's a key point to remember. It didn't come upon the apostle Peter. It didn't come upon just Peter, James, and John as the pillars of the early church. It came upon every single person in that room, male and female, young and old, those who were beggars, those who were lepers, those who were uneducated, and maybe those who were educated. It came upon every single one of them. And that's a theme in this chapter. And the next verse says, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, with tongues, just kind of a side note, there are these different kinds of speaking in tongues that, that happen. One tongue that's talked about in the book of Corinthians is the tongue that edifies ourselves. It's sort of a heavenly language or a prayer language that um, we don't understand exactly what we're saying. It's maybe groanings that cannot be uttered. Um, and it builds us up in our own faith. That's why Paul exhorted uh, the Corinthians uh, not to really do that unless you pray for an interpretation of what you're saying, not to do that in the corporate setting because it's not edifying. It doesn't build people up. Now, these tongues here are different. This was a sign and a wonder to the thousands of people that we're going to read about in a moment that are flooding into Jerusalem to celebrate the day of Pentecost, okay? Because that's what happened. People would come from all around the known world, all the Jews from all the different places, and they would come in for these various feasts. For example, when Jesus um, died, the Passover that week, there were thousands and thousands of people who came from all over the, the world all of the, the kind of the known region, the known world, um, into, into Jerusalem. So that's kind of what was happening on the day of Pentecost as well. So they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So this is a work of the Holy Spirit um, in them. This kind of fire, this tongue comes upon each of them and rests upon them. 
and they're filled and they begin to speak out. Every one of them. Gosh, even the shy ones, you know, were speaking out these words. And how many know that when the Spirit of God comes upon a shy person, they will speak? Do you know that? I'm shy. If you knew me in grade school, you'd be like, that kid is so shy. Wow, is that kid shy. But you know, when the Spirit of God comes upon us, it's not that we uh, lose control at all, but there is just, you, you, you almost can't help, but you just have to speak. You have to speak it out. It's like such a desire inside of you to speak. And that's what's happening here. And I don't think they exactly knew what was going on. This sound of the mighty rushing wind, these tongues of fire that rest on each of them, they begin to speak these things out. And here's the thing, they began to speak. Well, we'll read about this in a minute. I'll wait on that. Verse five, now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, we aren't sure what that sound is. Maybe it was the sound of the mighty rushing wind or it was the sound of 120 people just all speaking in tongues. It seems like kind of at the same time. That would be a sound that would kind of get people's attention, especially because it was nine o'clock in the morning. So they hear this sound at the sound, the multitude, and we find out later that it's, it's thousands of people. The multitude came Together, This is where it gets interesting for those that care about these little uh, detective details, like my wife, right? Like, how did the uh, 3,000 people fit into this room, this upper room, that, where there's you know, only 120 people? You know, so maybe they, uh, the disciples kind of float out of this upper room. Maybe the multitude came around and heard them praying out the open windows. We aren't really sure about those details. It probably doesn't really matter. But all we know is this multitude all of a sudden came around. So picture uh, 3,000 or so people gathered. That's about the size of uh, the PPAC, if you've ever been in there to see a show. Um, it, that's, a pretty good, that's a pretty good gathering of people. So they came together, this multitude, these Jews from all over the, the known world, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? Now, what does that mean to you? It didn't mean much to me until I kind of researched it a bit. And found out that the Galileans were sort of known for having a very strong accent. A little bit like Rhode Islanders, right? Like if you're from Johnston or where we're from, Warwick. You know, there, there's kind of, they had a very strong Galilean accent. And they weren't known for being very educated at all. So this group of Galileans are just speaking out these amazing works of God in all of these different languages, probably some that are really difficult to learn. And so the, 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 the Jewish crowd here, the, they're just like, what is going on? This is crazy. And they list uh, here 
all the different ones. Uh, how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language, Parthians and Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, uh, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them, we hear these 120, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And it got their attention. I would love to hear the actual little messages that, that these, I mean, I, we're not even, I have this feeling that the 120 were just belting out, you know, perfect, whatever, Italian or something. And they had no idea what they were even saying. So the messages were really crafted right from the heart of God. God himself was speaking, I think probably, you know, I would imagine that, again, we don't know how this exactly, I want more details, you know, but we don't know how it worked, but maybe, uh, let's say there was one in Italian, um, you know, maybe those who spoke in that particular language started to gather around that particular one that was speaking that message, and imagine the things that were said, the wonderful works of God, the works of Jesus, the, the probably talked about the resurrection, probably talked about how they saw Jesus, but something, God himself, the Holy Spirit was speaking a message to particular people groups. There was probably prophetic moments in there. There were probably the secrets of people's hearts that were revealed in that, but there was something so supernatural about this that It says in verse 12, all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, this is one of the two questions in Acts Acts 2, what does this mean? What a powerful question. You know, when the church of Jesus becomes potent enough again, maybe the world will ask that question, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said they are filled with new wine. They're just drunk. And I think that was more of a, I don't think it was a serious accusation as much as they were just being kind of ridiculous or just mocking or trying to be funny. So Peter, the great apostle, Peter stands up uh, with the 11 and lifts up his voice and addresses them. And he says, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day, 9 a.m., which was a little bit of a joke, I think. Peter started his sermon off with a joke. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. This is the essence of the promise that it's for everyone. 
And that's the theme that comes through. It's for everyone. It's for all. It's for men. It's for women. It's for the young. It's for the old. It's for all different classes of people. It's eventually going to be spreading across the whole world, right? Those imagery uh, verses in the book of Revelation is every tribe, every nation, every tongue, all different peoples coming together. You know, whoever came up with the idea that Christianity is a white man's religion really doesn't understand things. And I, I get some of the reasoning why they might say that, but the gospel has gone out throughout the entire world. In fact, it didn't start with the white people at all. I mean, people in the Middle East had very dark skin. But it's not a white man's religion. It's an everyone's religion. It's all the world. God says, I will make my house a house of prayer for what? All nations. And then he says, even on my male servants and female servants, in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. Prophesy just means to speak or to proclaim. Again, it's that word, you know, tongue of fire coming in. They're going to speak. God says, I'm going to pour out my spirit upon them. I'm going to pour out my spirit on all flesh and they will proclaim the excellencies of Christ. They will speak it out. All of them, not just the preachers, not just the prophets, not just the priests, but it's a new era. It's a new day because that's how it used to be in the Old Testament, right? The spirit of the Lord would come upon Micah. The spirit of the Lord would come upon David or Samson or whoever, some great king or some, you know, big powerhouse personality, Isaiah or something. But in the new era, in the age of the church, the Spirit of God is going to come upon ordinary believers and they are going to preach with fire. It makes me think of this missionary that we, that we uh, support as a church. Actually, her name is Jill Omari. She's been uh, serving in, in Africa uh, for, for many, many years. I think Kenya, I believe. Um, and I know her pastor, she's from Rhode Island, and her pastor said she was ridiculously shy, painfully, painfully quiet and shy. And, and he said, but the Spirit of God so moved in her life that she just became a different person. And she is so bold in Christ. And she has gone to this. She's been there for, gosh, I well over 20 years. And she has done a tremendous work of God in that region. And she's still, you know, she's not like an overbearing personality at all. But she is bold in Christ and doing great things. Well, he goes on to say, and he's quoting from the book of Joel, I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. It's speaking of the kind of the final season, the, the apocalyptic you know, promises in the Bible, the judgments that will come. Book of Revelation talks about that. And there's a lot of theories about what these actually mean. I just think it's, it's saying in so many words, it's going to be, there's going to be terrible things that happen. I mean, just look, read the news. We're, we're living in this. These are the last days. 
that we're living in. There's all kinds of terrible things that happen and they continue to happen and they will happen until Jesus comes back and, and makes everything right. But verse 21, it shall come to pass that everyone, there it is again, everyone, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I love that. Everyone. Now, I think Peter's speaking this, but he doesn't even know the full, the full implications of even what he's saying here. Because we know from Galatians and other, you know, it doesn't come out later until like chapter 10 that God pours out his spirit upon the Gentiles, upon the non-Jewish people. I think still even in Peter's mind, yeah, God's going to pour out his spirit on like all the Jews, you know, scattered all around. But actually that's no here we are, right? I'm not, I'm not Jewish. You know, God has poured out his spirit on everyone all throughout the world, every tribe, every nation. This promise is for all. It's beautiful. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. No matter the color, no matter the, the, the economic level, no matter how much education, no matter how much sin we have sinned in our life, no matter how many crimes we have committed, no matter how many people we've killed or how many, just doesn't matter what we've done, God will pour out his spirit on anyone who calls upon him. Makes me think of that verse in the New Testament that it's not God's will for any to perish, but for all to come to the knowledge of the truth. Everyone, everyone. He says, come, come. Just come just as you are. Come, yeah, you don't. There's nobody that's disqualified. No, no matter how you were born, no matter what you've done, no matter whatever, how much you know, it, it, there's nothing that disqualifies. God says, just come and I will save you. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, just for the sake of time, I'm going to, skip over this incredible, great message of Peter because we just don't have the time to, to get into it. But Peter gives this message, and you can read it for yourself. It's a simple gospel message, preaching Jesus and talking about the work that Jesus did. And then he uh, lands on verse, uh, oh, we'll say 33. Having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, this Holy Spirit that you are now seeing and hearing. Then he says, verse 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, stricken in conscience. It, 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 it just hit them. It overwhelmed them. They felt cut, guilt. I know we don't like guilt these days, but there is a time for the Holy Spirit to reveal our sin to us, and we are overwhelmed with guilt. Thank God he doesn't leave us in that guilt, <laughs> but we have to kind of feel the sting of our guilt before a holy God. We have to feel the weight of our sin before we can really be prepared to receive the grace of God and the pardon of God. But that's what's happening here. These 3,000 are deeply just cut to the heart 
And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, here's the second question in Acts chapter 2. What shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent, which just means to turn away from your sin, turn to Christ, change your mind, change your way of thinking about things, and be baptized, identify with Christ. Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness, continued to exhort them, saying, save yourself from this crooked generation. So those who received his word, Peter's little sermon, they were baptized. And there added that day about 3,000 souls. And then we move into this um, kind of picture, a portrait of just the early believers in the community, the kind of church they were. It says, and they, speaking of the, these 3,000, along with 120, this church was growing very fast, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, uh, the fellowship, which we talked about a few weeks ago. Fellowship isn't just, you know, chatting, chatting it up about whatever. It's, it's real... Um, spiritual potluck, you know, where everybody's kind of bringing, bringing something of what God is doing in their life into the, the mix, into the community. So they were devoted to this. They, they knew they needed each other. They were devoted to the breaking of bread, which was just sharing meals uh, with one another and, and remembering the, the body and blood of Christ and to the prayers. And awe came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any, as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, just in these last few moments, I just want to press upon you this one verse. It's verse 39 that says, the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And I just want to press upon you that this promise is for, is for you. This promise of the Holy Spirit, this, this, this life of God that can, can make Christ known to you, that can change you, that can transform you, that can give you peace and joy, that can cause you to be drenched in supernatural love. This promise is not just for the 120 or the, the 3,000, 2,000 years ago, but it's for us. It's for us. It's for them, it's for their children, it's for their children's children, it's for all those who are far off, everywhere where the Lord God is going to call people. And he's calling us, of course. He's inviting us to himself. And this promise is for us, this promise of fullness. Now the question is, why 
does it seem sometimes like there are churches or Christians that are not experiencing this promise of the Holy Spirit, right? Have you ever thought about that? Like, why are some churches so dead? Why do some Christians proclaim about God? You know, they seem to profess God, but then there's uh, an emptiness in their life. There seems to be no power. Where is the power? Was the power just something that happened 2,000 years ago? Or is the power still power today? Is it the same power that rose Christ from the dead, you know, in them and also in us? The Spirit of God that Paul had or Peter had or James of the 120, do we today have the same Holy Spirit? Yes, we do. It's the same Spirit at work in the world in us. So the question is, why don't more Christians have this overflowing mark of the Holy Spirit on their lives? Well, I'll just say it's not because God is stingy. It's not because God changed his mind. He really liked the first century Christians, but he just, he's, he just, he's sick of pouring out his blessing and his Holy Spirit upon Christians. So he's just, he's taking a break in this century. No, that's not, that's not how God is. God is not moody. God doesn't, oh, you know, he's in the mood to bless. Some, we, some of us have parents like that, right? You know, they, they're in a good mood, so they bless us, and they're in a bad mood, and so that we get nothing. God is not like that. And listen, God does not lie. Amen. He promises what he will deliver. God does not say things like, I am a rewarder of those who diligently seek me, but it's not really true. God doesn't say, draw near to me and I will draw near to you. But it's, you know, when we put it to the test, nothing happens. Jesus himself said, ask and you shall receive. Seek and you shall find. I mean, think I could keep going, right? Jeremiah 29, if you seek for me and search for me with all of your heart, what? You will find me. You will find me. I even, <clears throat> I love this uh, imagery in Luke 11 where Jesus says, look, ask and you will receive. And then he says, I mean, what father, if uh, his son asked for, I think, I, don't, I forgot what it was, fish, would say, oh, here, and give the boy a serpent. Or, oh, dad, can I have a loaf of bread? And the father says, yeah, here, take this rock and chew on this for a while. I mean, Jesus was being funny, really, and said, look, if you, uh, being of sinful nature, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more, Jesus said, will the Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Amen. I mean, there's so many promises in Scripture, Proverbs too, if you seek for me and search for me, if you, if you hunt for me, if you search for me like for hidden treasure, you will find me. Those who seek me will find me, Jesus said. So listen, I just want to say it as strong as I can say it. If we are not experiencing uh, the, the fullness of the Holy Spirit and me as well, like, you know, I've been a Christian for a long time and there have been seasons where I have not really been experiencing the power of the Holy Spirit. It is not 
because of God. It is not because God is just not in the mood. God is always in the mood to fill us with the Holy Spirit. You say, what about dry times? Oh, yeah. He loves to bring forth streams of water in the desert. He pours out water upon the thirsty land. Now, that doesn't mean you're going to feel every day, every moment of every day, this, you know, exhilaration of the power of the Holy Spirit and whatever that means. No, I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about the Spirit of God in you and flowing out of your life. That is for every day. What day would we wake up and God would say, yeah, today I don't want to flow through you. Yeah, today I'm not going to fill you. Today you're going to have nothing. You get nothing today. When would God ever say that? He says, on the contrary, Ephesians 5.18, be being filled with the Spirit. Be continuously filled with the Holy Spirit. That's all the time. So, when we're not filled, it's on us. It's because we're proud. Because we've become smug. It's because we've, uh, you know, we just, we think we know it all. We think we don't need it. We think we don't need God. The Bible says clearly we have to humble ourselves, right? We have to, he gives grace to the humble. How about if we're proud? The proud man gets nothing. Actually, he gets resistance from God. If we quench the spirit, if we hold on to sins, if we hold on to idols, if we want to do our own thing, if we have a divided heart, the scripture is very clear that the Lord promises nothing to the divided heart. To the double-minded, they should expect nothing. Right? David said, if I regard iniquity, if I hold on to sin, I want to do this. I'm doing my thing. This is my sin. I'll get rid of this sin, that sin, this sin, this sin, but this sin I'm holding on to. David said, if you, if I, he was saying, if I regard iniquity, the Lord will not hear my prayers. Whoa. It's in there. There's got to be a consecration about our lives. There's got to be a purity, not a perfection, but our hearts and our lifestyle has to be aligned with Scripture. You have to be obedient to God. You say, oh, it's so hard to obey. That's not, I'm sorry, but that's not scriptural. I'm not saying it's easy necessarily to obey. Sometimes it's tough, but you have the ability to obey. The commandments of God are not burdensome. It says in 1 John, Jesus said, my burden is light. My yoke is easy. I will give you everything you need to live this life and to be godly. So we, there's really no Scripture just cuts out all the excuses. Oh, it's so hard to obey God. I don't know. It's just, I can't do it. God says, I will give you everything you need to be able to do this. Everything. So we have to be aligned. And we have to seek him. As I've said many times, you can't just casually seek God and expect to be blessed. Right? I mean, who are the most casual people in the Bible, the Laodiceans, lukewarm. There wasn't a lot of promise there, was there? There was no promise. There's no promise in the Bible that says, I will pour out my spirit upon the half-hearted, casual Christian. 
I mean, find it. Maybe you can find a, a you know, an anomaly. There are times when God seems to just move and do extraordinary things regardless of a person even seeking. Yes, there are times that kind of break the norm. But he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Those who seek him will lack no good thing. You cannot expect to be filled with the spirit if you are not thirsty for it. It's just a requirement. I don't know. I didn't, I didn't make this stuff up. You know, this is how it works. You have to hunger and you have to thirst. And that means time. That means giving time to the pursuit of God. You say, well, I, you know, I spend 10 minutes every single morning. I mean, I spend 30 minutes a day. I spend one and a half hours a week on Saturday morning. I give my whole morning to prayer. Listen, that's not thirst. That might be a start. But David said in Psalm 42, what? As the deer pants for water, so my soul thirsts for you, O God. The thirsty man doesn't thirst for 30 minutes in the morning and then forget about God for the next 15 and a half hours. That's not thirsty. That's not thirst. Thirst has to consume you. Thirst and hunger is something that's on your mind. Now, you can be doing other things. You can be doing responsibilities, but it's, it's on your heart. It's in you. You know, even if you're super busy, it's interesting that when you finally get that space, if you're really thirsty for God and you get that moment, you, you know, you have a bathroom break or you're driving home from work or whatever, where does your heart move to? Oh, God, the thirst is there. And I'm not saying it's easy. You have to labor. You have to cultivate thirst in your life. Get around thirsty people. Listen to messages that are spoken by thirsty souls. Read the scriptures. Soak in this. Read books written by men and women who were ablaze with desire for God. And it will begin to get into you. It will seep into your spirit. You got to work at it. I don't know about you, but this makes me hungry. You know, I want this outpouring of the spirit. I'm excited because it's just hitting me so hard this week that God is willing. He's not just willing. Well, okay, I said I said I'd give him the spirit, so I guess I got to be faithful. He's not only willing, he is eager to pour out his spirit. We don't have to twist his arm, as if we could. We don't have to beg him for it. Oh, please change your mind. Really, we would be great candidates for the outpouring of this. Listen, he already wants to do it. Isaiah 30 says he longs to be gracious. He longs to pour out his spirit upon us. Isn't that good news? I don't know. Sometimes I get to, you know, I'm trying to like convince God that it would be a good idea to pour out his spirit upon me and upon the church. And God must be like, when are you, who do you think I am? What do you think I need to be convinced? He wants to do it. 
That just puts it on us. Let's hunger. We can do that. All of us. You don't have to be heroic. You don't have to be like super Christian. I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about just like hunger for God. Just humble yourself. Who can't like, who can't do that? We can humble ourselves before God. Lord, I need you. We can align our lives up with scripture. It's not hard. It's not. We make it seem hard. Oh, it's so hard to obey Jesus. We're making God out to be like a, this heavy, burdensome, putting these huge burdens on us. Is that really God? God's like, I'm giving you everything you need. I'll supply grace. You just need to let go. It's not hard. We can do this. May this be the, the year of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Wren Church. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right, guys. So let's take the next. I know I talked way too long. This is a ridiculous. I can't. But it's, it's, it's good. Take the next, uh, let's take the next t- 10 minutes, maybe 15, and get in groups. If you have little kids downstairs in the kids' church, just keep an eye on time, and maybe you can slip out of your circle and go grab your kids so the kids' workers don't have to be down there longer than they, they need to. But take 10, 15 minutes. Don't be in a super rush. Um, and I won't dismiss. I won't come back up here. You guys can you know, kind of fade out or slip out whenever you feel it's time. But let's just spend some time with each other. Just talk about this. What do you think? How do you feel? How does it make you feel? What's confusing? Um, just encourage each other. So the chairs are disconnected. You can just turn them around, switch them however you want to, get in groups of maybe whatever you want, three or four or five. If the group's too big, then it's hard to interact much. Um, So uh, yeah, go ahead and do it. Enjoy. Hope you guys were encouraged. And happy Mother's Day to all the moms.